Good morning, and welcome to Office Hours. We're here to answer your questions about anything technical or digital on every morning here. And uh, we usually start with general tech questions. And on Saturdays, our second hour is about education and all things education. Uh, be sure to get your questions in. Um, we answer them in the order that they're voted on. So be sure to vote them up or down. And that drives our discussion and gives us direction as to what answers you'd like first. And um, today we're uh, doing brainstorming in education. So if you've got ideas about the future of education and you want to talk about it, uh, bring those things to us in the second hour and we'll note them down and make plans for the future. But the future right now is general questions. So Aaron, let's get started with our first one. Our first question comes to us from Guy Cochran in Seattle. Has Black Magic been using AI? And he lists a link. Courtney, you can start us off. Well, I guess it depends on what your interpretation of artificial intelligence is. Uh, reiterative programming or self-modifying code or, you know, is algorithmic, but it's not necessarily using a uh, um, neural network to make decisions. So in a way, I think it has been using a, a type of AI, a limited type of AI to on the back end to increase the speed of its workflow or you know, deterministic uh, programming so that it decides uh, what to do or how to arrange things uh, based on your input, uh, your various input that it's been tracking over a period of time. So in a way, yes, but I don't think in the way that the large language models are using for doing you know, text-to-speech, things like that. John Snyder. I agree with Courtney. I think it's a little bit sad that now the term AI means generative AI using a large language model. Um, there's a lot more to artificial intelligence than that, including things like machine learning and as a subset. Um, but we're getting to the point where when people say AI, what they mean is some sort of text-to-speech, which uh, there's a lot more to it than that, and it will be more transformative in most industries beyond just uh, helping you write an email. And Jeffrey Powers. And the very blunt answer is yes, because uh, they just put out 18.5, which has the ability to uh, not only create captions, but also use those captions to uh, create your edits in the uh, in the video. So uh, in, in, in all reality, in the music and video industry, AI has been used for a, a couple of years now with uh, different types of plugins. So it's not... It's not unnatural for uh, Blackmagic to already uh, do that. Doing it in things like the camera would be probably the better. Th it would be something that would kind of start blowing our minds. Like, for instance, I, if if you were outside and a bird flew by and it could AI out that or it could knock out that bird within a second, uh, if you put a little delay on there, that would be that would be really cool. But uh, for the most part, a lot of their uh, post-processing stuff has been AI. Courtney, you got more thoughts? Yeah, I kind of fear, I hate AI in to some respect. The people, uh, you know, where they will automate something because the designers of the hardware or software thought, you know, we'll just make that decision for the user, you know, because we don't want to make it too complex. You know, like when they uh, determined uh, when computers got smart enough to detect when you plugged a monitor into your computer that... Um, it would then turn on the video output for that monitor. But if you didn't have a monitor plugged into that computer, you couldn't turn on that video output no matter how hard you tried because it's AI said, oh, we know better. There's no monitor there. 
But uh, if you needed to have it on for programming reasons, you couldn't fool it, and they locked you out of it. So I hate AI that tries to be smarter than you are and cannot be disabled, you know. Well, I guess my thoughts on it are that, you know, as Courtney says, if AI is not restricting us or confining us or limiting what we can do, then it's going to be very helpful. I think AI is going to invisibly blend into our world and we won't even notice when it's interfering or getting in its way. Uh, we may not even uh, need AI in many instances, but uh, black magic are future thinking people and they're just looking at any way that the machine language learning uh, can be integrated into their products. So I look forward to seeing what their innovations are, but they've been innovating for some time now. And we'll have the next question. Our next question comes to us from John Foltz in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. Does anyone know where to find a copy of the Fenwick Framer 2.0? I have version 1.0. Thanks. I'm not entirely sure a version 2.0 has been officially issued. I know there's a lot of talk about refining the Fenwick frame, and I'm sure we'll all be notified when some standard is set and that we're all required to use it. 2.5 is what people are talking about next for office hours. So I think 2.5 is going to be a revision, uh, mostly for being able to watch this on uh, television screens and, and larger frames, uh, so that the people in the frame don't come through the living room at you in 3D. Um, but look forward to it in the future. I haven't had anyone put anything in the events or uh, I don't haven't seen any links to anything uh, brought forward. So it's something to keep our eye open for in the future. Next question. Our next question comes to us from George Butters in Halifax. Is anyone using Fireflies.ai or the like for in-video meeting transcript, recording, analyzing, creating a meeting summary, then using the results to quickly produce audio or video clips using the connected transcript and AV tracks. Alternatives? Take it away, John. I haven't tried this one specifically, but the first application that Microsoft integrated into was Teams. And so Teams has the ability to track your Teams meetings and summarize those meetings. And Zoom will have it soon. So you're going to see these same features end up within the applications themselves. And we'll have our next question. Our next question comes to us from George Butters in Halifax. We keep advising colleagues in the professional writing community that ChatGPT isn't coming for your clients, but writers who are adopting ChatGPT and similar tools. How to convince them to get aboard before it's too late. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you can point out, uh, you know, the amount of hourly rate that the chat GPT gets versus its residuals. And, you know, you may convince them that they better get on board before it's too late because there's alternatives to them writing. And if they don't use those tools to improve on those tools, then uh, they could be replaced by them. John Snyder. You could also go to ChatGPT and ask for a compelling and persuasive explanation as to how ChatGPT will help uh, you do your job better. Uh, realistically, it's a tool, and those people who learn how to use their tools the best continue to have employment, and those who um, rely on old systems in any industry eventually get replaced. So um, I would try to help them see the value that ChatGPT can add to their life and um, help them learn why they might want to use it, not just that they have to use it or should use it or else they'll be replaced. 
And Nigel, you've got thoughts, I'm sure. Yeah, I think ChatGPT is coming for some of their jobs, particularly some of the not very good writers. And I think that those of us who are who either struggle with dyslexia or some other type of uh, uh, writing or reading inability or ability, as you ever want to call it, um, I use ChatGPT all the time. It proofreads things the same that Grammarly does. And all of those times I use that, I'm not employing a writer to do that. So I think the question will be for the writers, not how do the really good ones survive, because I think the really good ones will be creative and they will do original things and they will find a place for themselves in the market. I think the question is for those who are just the middle of the road or the low end, how do they get good and how can ChatGPT or something like it help them do that? Or what new career should they look for? Jeffrey Powers. So there's always been that debate of whether uh, whether ChatGPT or any of the other uh, other any of the other AI writing uh, tools are ever going to write something like an Aaron Sorkin type uh, monologue or script or anything like that without some errors and, and without some error checking. Uh, I think that some people, yeah, uh, as uh, as the others said, I think some people will pretty much shine. There, there's going to be one or two that will not need to use anything like ChatGPT, and they'll still continue to have the clients that they have. They're definitely going to run up against this wall, that's for sure. And maybe they'll give it a try, and they'll say, okay, it's it's something that uh, work around. For me, it's perfect because I hate to write. I just just don't like it, and it's nice to actually be able to create a framework, uh, and which is what I'm using with Bard uh, whenever I write an article is create a framework that I can write and expound upon, and I think that's going to be the best part, uh, my best use for any uh, GPT at least at least at, at this time, but uh, definitely uh, it's something that will work for some people, and other people they'll be able to live without it, and they'll still make money doing it. I kind of go with John Snyder on this one where, you know, we're just learning this tool and we're going to have to learn how it works and learn to give it the proper instructions in order to behave the way we want it to. It's like learning to drive for the very first time, getting the whole vehicle figured out and the traffic figured out and the patterns and then all the laws that are connected to it. So all the things JetGPT right now are just experimental, they're prototyping, they're including it in a lot of things and we're going to develop some skills around it. Uh, the other thing, I go with some other people who said uh, that ChatGPT is really just a book learning device. It doesn't write the next novel. It doesn't create the next new thing. It simply writes in a style that we're familiar with. So for situation comedies, which all work on a sort of formula, maybe ChatGPT helps people make better jokes. But it can't come up with original material. You have to bring that to the table. And I think, as Jeffrey said, if it helps with getting your writing started and giving you material to work with, then it makes you think differently about your writing and maybe learn a little more about proper grammar and all the rest that chat can give us and give us ideas about what to write rather than just doing it for us. Uh, John, you're back. Yeah, the problem is saying that ChatGPT won't uh, replace the good writers or won't write the next Aaron Sorkin movie is the vast majority of content in this world doesn't need to be good. Um, and you can just see that in what just turn on your television at some point. The vast majority of stuff, even that makes it to TV, is not that great. And ChatGPT can replace most of it. Good point. Courtney? 
Yeah, uh, you may find out whether this is coming true or not sooner than you think, because as we speak right now, the Writers Guild of America is in negotiations this weekend with the uh, AMPTP about their next contract and whether or not they're going to go out on strike or not. So, um, you know, come Monday or Tuesday, if they have not come to a an agreement, we may find out, you know, what it's like to write those late-night jokes. Uh, and that's, those are going to be the first programs that are affected by the strike because they're news-based. Uh, on whether ChatGPT can write uh, a comic script or uh, a good script for those late-night hosts to deliver, we may find out. I think I, I see some tiki torches, and I'm hearing the chat bots will not replace us coming in from outside here. So. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, Nigel. Yeah, I'm just musing on the idea that a chat GPT bot may be able to do better than most of the late-night comics seem to have got from their jokes because they, they seem to be fairly flat. Um, I, I tell you, if that does happen, Courtney, um, we will have the next generation of user-generated com- content coming, but it's more reality program than anything. Oh. And I, I fear reality. I know that's scripted nowadays. The next generation reality will probably be even less scripted. Well, I wanted. To, sorry, I had to butt in, but I, I wanted to no, say one ahead. more thing. I forgot to say is is that when they say that uh, Chat GPT can't be creative, uh, it can, and that's what hallucination is, and uh, that's a problem right now in the accuracy of trying to get uh, information out of a, a chatbot. It can hallucinate and make up a perfectly believable storyline or sideline or product that doesn't exist. So they can be creative. So don't don't let you think that it works off of formulaic and it only spits out what it's seen before, what's been loaded into its uh, into its training. Always a great discussion, Chat Chat GPT and my um, journey and all the rest are generating a lot of discussion, and maybe that's part of what they do too. Let's move to the next question. Our next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Blue Sky, the Twitter rival, just doubled in size on Thursday. Is there finally a for real alternative to Twitter? Does anyone have an invite they can share with me? Go ahead, Nigel. I do not have an invite. I have asked for one, but they have yet to uh, yet to send me one, so I, I can't tell you what it looks like. I will tell you, though, that I think there's a long journey between saying you have a rival of scale and having a rival of scale. Um, and, I, and so I'm not saying that it won't replace Twitter. What I suspect is that Twitter will not be what Twitter was, that, that there is a transaction engine at the heart of Twitter that Musk has a different idea for. And so uh, if you want to go to a community where everybody says what you want to hear, then maybe Blue Sky is the right answer. Uh, I would always suggest to people that if you want to use these tools, learning to use you know, uh, lists and working out who you want to listen to is the best way to manage them. Thank you. Jeffrey Powers. So... This is the interesting thing about social networks and influencers, for that matter. And this has been happening since we started having social networks. And that is sign up early, sign, get your, get your, your handle that you want as, as early as possible and build up your networks as quick as possible. So, uh, if the, if you become the big fish in the small pond, it makes it easier for you to build from that and then take that success and move it to other 
platforms to build those successes. So uh, if a blue, when Blue Sky comes out, you go out and you try and get your handle as quick as possible. You're trying to build up the network as quick as possible, which also means you need to spend some time, <coughs> excuse me, some time on it as, as quick as possible. Uh, and I've done that so many times with, uh, with results that have either never really went anywhere or they've just kind of failed Google Plus, and uh, you just uh, you just have to uh, roll with the punches and go to the next thing. So my guess is this is just a land grab at this point. Uh, for since Dorsey is behind it, uh, it's a land grab. So people, if this does become the next thing, then people will come. But you also got to remember that Twitter was never a thing itself. I'm going to follow up on that last remark. Yes. In the global scheme of things, Twitter is not big. There are three or four other rivals, if you want to call them. They're different, but they're much more popular, and they're used by everyone around the world as an alternative to Twitter. In some countries, Brazil or China, they don't care about Twitter. So I hope that helps answer your question. Next one. Our next question comes to us from Eric Price in Kansas City. Is mix assistant on the pre-mix a pre- or post-fader effect, i.e., will the ISO track recordings be unaffected? Uh, this is regarding the sound device's mix pre. I don't know what model, but if mix assistant is giving you um, an adjustment or a sound reduction or a control over noise, um, suppressing background noise, I would imagine it's in the... Uh, post fader effect it's you can still adjust your levels and you can adjust your sensitivity of your suppression separately uh courtney probably has better understanding of mix pre because i don't use one i don't have it either but i can give you an educated guess um that uh, most auto mixers uh, let you use they only uh, affect the output of the LR feed or the feed that you suggest that you set up to have mix pre feed it usually feeds a uh, the left right to mix channels and uh, I think you use the faders to set the maximum level for each channel and then it will attenuate those uh, depending upon who's speaking in other words it'll it'll take the person speaking up to the maximum level that you set on the fader and it will attenuate the other people. Uh, below what you have as the maximum level on their faders set to. So uh, it does that, and so it controls its mix that way with you setting a maximum uh, uh, level for, or, or an average level, I guess, for each individual channel. And it, I don't believe it affects your ISO channels at all. Those are, are pre-fader recordings. We'll go to the next question. Oh, well, hold on. John has put his hand up. Let's see what he Yeah, um, in the chat, Mickey Makator says, on the mix pre, it's post-fade and only affects the ISO. Okay, that's the definitive answer we were looking for. Thanks for that, Mickey. Next question. Our next question comes to us from George Butters in Halifax. When signing up for some online services, such as ChatGPT, you need a Google or Microsoft account. Where's Apple? Nigel, why don't you start us off? So I said the deafening silence coming from uh, Cupertino, I suspect, will get solved on uh, June 6th, start of uh, WWDC, where we'll we'll hear what their plan is. But uh, but my guess also is that uh, the sites could be using, you know, uh, 
Apple to manage the signups if they wanted to. They probably just don't want to. But let's wait for June the 6th. There seems to be a lot of stuff uh, I hope they're going to do, Final Cut Pro being one of those areas. I can say that a few years ago, Apple did offer sign up with Apple, and not many people have adopted it. So it's more a case of whether the vendors at these places who let you use Google or Microsoft accounts to sign in are also allowing Apple's sign-in to be used. So there are other sign-ins as well, but uh, yes, Apple's presence in this regard is pretty small. Next question. Our next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. A survey said that 51% of students will use generative AI even when banned. Should we wave the white flag? And he lists a link. That's quite the link. Aaron, you want to start us off? Absolutely. I think we do not need to wave the white flag. Just let them use it. Let them use it. I can absolutely admit that on the past two rounds of report cards and progress reports, I have used ChatGPT to help me reword things because I feel like sometimes we say the same thing over and over again. So to change it up a little bit, throw in some extra adjectives and adverbs that we just haven't used in a while, it just makes things more interesting. And the thought that students are just using this and just hitting copy and paste, yeah, a bunch of them might be, but there's so much that they can do that with on Google that it's, what's the point? I would say, let them figure out a way to use the AI and then challenge them to make it better. Like have ChatGPT make this answer for you, persuade us to do this, but then you do a counter argument, something like that to like still let them use the technology, but not let it just take over and be plagiarism. Good answer. Courtney? Yeah, I think uh, waving the white flag is surrendering and letting them use it. Uh, so yeah, I think you should because it's like when Napster came along and the record industry you know, fought like crazy to try and prevent uh, people from streaming and they added DRM to everything and that didn't work and that limited a lot of their sales and they finally figured out streaming and figured that, hey, if we just go along with this, we can add to all of our sales by making the stuff available at a reasonable cost and it costs us very little to uh, to manufacture these this say these sales and we still can get money for the intellectual property so i think they're going to have to give in educators the ability to detect uh chat gpt results is getting harder and harder and they're, they're going to have to create ai tools to detect the use of the ai tools and then those will be gamed uh, it's a never-ending battle that you're not going to win so i think uh, you just have to teach the students how to use this this new tool and how they can use it in uh, you know their future work and have to adopt to it. Thank you. And Jeffrey? You know that Stephen Wright always said that 87% of all statistics were made up on the spot. I'm going to be the devil's advocate here, and I'm going to say yes. I think that you should uh, fight the good fight as best as possible. Uh, anybody that's learning, the best way to learn, I always feel the best way to learn is not to give them any aids. I mean, in math, when we went to school, it was don't use calculators, maybe uh, slide rules or anything like that. 
to uh, to learn your math. Learn it the old way, and then and then bring in something like ChatGPT uh, or or these AI tools to enhance what you're doing from there. But at least get the core fundamentals done uh, using that, and maybe even if you decide to let it let it go a little bit, maybe make some challenges. So just uh, by having a classroom challenge, that okay, this one don't use any AI on this one, but this one you can go to town on it and and see where you're where you go from there and how things would work differently with AI without AI and I think you'll get some good results that way as well thanks and John Snyder I feel like this conversation points to a bigger problem in education where we focus on the ends instead of the means and we're saying that somehow passing is the goal instead of educating or learning or being prepared for life and our curricula should reflect what we want to change in the students' abilities and skills. And if that mean, if the best tool to do that is to use ChatGPT, we should use ChatGPT. And if the best tool is to not, we should not use it. If the best tool is to teach them how to use it and um, evaluate and find out where it's wrong or be learn how to take responsibility for AI output, then we should do that. It just depends on what are we trying to do and instead of just constantly being in arms war about, we should try to get the kids to pass or not pass. And Nigel. I'm 100% with that observation that was just made by John. I think I think our education system is stuck some somewhere in the late 17th century in the way that it operates, and it needs a completely different model. And those of us who have uh, different sets of uh, learning abilities get very frustrated when the specific learning ability that is cherished most is such a small part of the spectrum in which we learn. But I'm also tempted to say that I suspect there was a point when people went around saying, this new generation doesn't know how to skin a woolly mammoth. How will it survive? It's the end of mankind as we know it. And uh, we got over that as well. Mm -hmm. We found new ways. Chris Clark, bring us home. Uh, bring us home. That's a challenge. Uh, I thought about uh, using... Uh, chat GPT or equivalent in uh, student writing is that it presents a wonderful opportunity that's now uh, pretty rare, which is to edit what you've written. 99% of uh, the papers that have ever been turned into me as an instructor have been first drafts and written on the, the evening before they were due. Uh, but it, as every uh, good writer knows, that the uh, going from a first draft to an actually a good product involves editing and rewriting and revision. So if, if uh, a generative AI can help you produce a first draft that you then improve upon, uh, that's uh, taking a writing opportunity and instruction opportunity to learn to a, a level that's uh, not very common in uh, in my experience so i'm i'm all for uh, asking everyone to take a step up uh, together now that this tool is uh, relatively available i'm reminded that when wikipedia first came out it was difficult for people to accept and the reliability of the information came into question. 
and its ability to delve deeply into things in history was questioned because it was mostly about computers at the beginning. Now it's a reliable resource in many ways, and its reference system is quite reliable. So um, high school and that sort of uh, level, they're allowing that sort of research to be done on Wikipedia. But again, we're talking about submitting assignments or finishing and, and writing things for school. And maybe chat will come along. It'll get better, and we'll get better at using it. And then we'll find it's just like microwave ovens. We wonder how we ever did without them. Next question. Our next question comes to us from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. We end up talking a lot about micro-learning and on-the-job learning techniques in office hours. How do you approach macro-learning, a.k.a. curriculum design? Chris Clark, how do you approach that? Thinking about curriculum design um, leads me to um, remark that today, uh, most curricula at the uh, secondary school level and below are uh, handed to teachers. They're adopted, they're, they're created by uh, corporations like Pearson that um, are in the business of generating curricula. But then what happens is that every teacher, everyone who is handed that curriculum uh, modifies it. And we modify it sometimes accidentally and sometimes due to constraints like time and sometimes um, intentionally. Uh, but we modify it in the, in the delivery of the curriculum so that the curriculum as taught or experienced by the students is different from the curriculum as intended by those who developed it. So rather than treating that as a, a bug in the system or a problem to be solved with so-called teacher-proof curricula, I say we, um, we focus on teacher planning, modification, and accommodation of the curriculum as presented to to the teacher, uh, modification in the direction of adapting it to the, the needs and opportunities presented by your particular students and school and, and your own background knowledge and interest and your, your sources of uh, compelling stories and, and illustrations of how the abstract principles involved in the curriculum look and feel in uh, actual practice. So it's, it's uh, shifting attention from what knowledge is of most worth, as the old saying goes, to how can we make the, uh, the knowledge, the opportunity, and the activities presented by the uh, curriculum publisher um, appropriate for my own abilities and background knowledge and passions and that of my students. Thank you, Aaron. Dr. Clark, you always say things so wonderfully. I feel like I don't even need to add on, but I will because this is maybe in my wheelhouse that I'm on so many curriculum writing teams. I always sign up because as many people have said, 
If you don't participate, then you can't complain. So this way I know I can complain about it because at least I tried. Um, so there are so many times that we have to take what the the state or the district has given us, usually our standards, and yeah, we have to follow them in order to get to what every student needs by the end. But then it is always so subjective, depending on who is looking at a piece of work. You, If I look at a work that one of my students did who's a struggling reader, and they wrote me three great sentences, I'd be so pumped. If you had that same student give it to a different teacher who doesn't know their stu that student, doesn't have the relationship, doesn't know the story, doesn't know what they deal with at home, they might say, well, the assignment was to write seven, you only wrote three, you failed. So that's why I feel like the teachers need to be, or educators or people that know something about education, like at least know something about child pedagogy before you start making curriculum. I mean, there are so many times that I look at our math chapters in one of the, the big brands that we use. And yes, there are a lot of beautiful examples on the page with diagrams and little um, cartoon animals on the side to like point to things, but that can be really overstimulating for some kids. So we have to modify it, like Krista said, to make it work for our students. Because I know my students would start drawing on top of it and making it have a jetpack or making it have wings or making it have devil horns. You know, that's not going to help them learn the math. So while I, I think, John, your question can kind of be this. <sighs> the word I'm trying to come put together is you, you have to know what the end result is on the macro scale, as well as knowing what your kids need, what your kids know and how you can give it to them, but also doing that on the job micro changing and micro modifying to know what's going to be beneficial in the end. So in general, you just need to be able to be that expert. And that's what I feel good educators are. They both modify on the fly and help look for the macro learning and how to make the curriculum work for them and their students. Thank you, Aaron. John, a response? Yeah, I'm still chuckling about teacher-proof curricula. I didn't think of it as a goal to make it resistant to a teacher's ability to teach it. Um, on the other hand, I also build those when I'm thinking of training materials. I've tried to build my training materials so someone who doesn't have a background can deliver them in a successful way. Um, so coming from the corporate world, and there's some big differences, and the, and the biggest difference is in the corporate world, if your student doesn't succeed, you release them, and you don't have to deal with them the, the rest of several years later. Um, but when we're thinking long-term curricula, um, in the corporate world, a lot of times the training department becomes order takers, where someone says, I need training on this, without thinking about what the problem they're trying to solve is or what specifically they're trying to do differently or what the outcome should be. And what ends up happening is that the education team or the training team gets so wrapped up in just delivering orders that they don't aren't able to think strategically about the organization and where it's trying to go. And what stirred this question was, was thinking about that um, and how do we design something bigger picture than just, oh, I need training on X, Y, or Z within the next three weeks. And generally corporate world, we're thinking um, using Kirkpatrick's four-level model of learning um, 
results and it's the ROI process is what are the business outcomes I expect to see from this? What behaviors do our learners, and you work backwards from there, what behaviors do my learners need to be able to do in order to achieve that from there? What, um, what do they need to know in order to be able to do that behavior? And then from there, um, how's the best way to deliver that knowledge? And so that that's how you decide things like what format to use or what tools to use. And then lastly, like, what do I want my people to feel when they're done? And so you work backwards from most valuable to least valuable, depending on how much effort you want to put into the process. I'll just follow up with, yes, the corporate thing is very different from formal education. And that in my jurisdiction, the province, we uh, review all of our curricula every 10 years, I think. And it's a uh, tractor tread of changes so that they choose math one period and then they go into science another period and they do language and English. And the curriculum is revised and updated. And I've worked with three people who are involved in that process and have been over the years. And each of them tries to put modern innovations into the curriculum. That's an effort that they're undertaking to become a participant. Like Aaron said, you you got to be part of the change you want to see happen. Uh, others have political motives. They, they have something about the curriculum they don't like, and they'd like to adjust it in order to suit their, their particular focus. Uh, others have looked into innovative methods of teaching and want to adjust the curriculum to allow that flexibility, to give more opportunities for interpretation so that teachers in the classroom and facing the issues directly can have some flexibility that is accounted for. And in the past, it was so rigid that you got in trouble if someone was assessing you in the classroom and said you weren't following the curriculum close enough and you got marked in that respect. So the changes made on a regular basis help the curriculum flow with the modern world, never, as Nigel has pointed out, catching up to the uh, out of the 17th century, perhaps, but getting us closer to the 19th. And I think, you know, the the way corporations have a focus, and, and John's explanation of disposing of the person if they can't learn, is not something you have as an option in formal education. You have to nurture the student all the way through. And yes, some students do not succeed, and that's a social problem, uh, not so much a curriculum problem. Next question. Our next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. If Apple allows sideloading in iOS 17, how will iPhone security be affected? And just what is sideloading and what why does it comply with European regulations? This is a fairly hot topic, I think, recently. So, Jeffrey, start us off. All right. So, to begin with, uh, sideloading, basically the ability to skip the Apple Store, all their rules and regulations, all their checks and balances, and load an app onto your phone directly from the vendor. Now, the European uh, European Union wants this act put in, basically requiring companies to uh, allow the installation of third-party apps to let uh, users more easily sideload or bring in their apps to test and to ultimately use. This was one of the big things with the uh, with Epic and Apple. Epic didn't want to use Apple's App Store, and so they wanted to uh, be able to sideload that in. And of course, that uh, that that passed this uh, this last week. So, 
the biggest example of why this shouldn't happen is Uber. And if you if you haven't watched the story about Uber or or read anything on it, you should. Basically, in a nutshell, they tried several times to skirt the system to appease their shareholders because that was their locale is to make more money, whereas Apple's is to uh, try and keep things very secure. You can jailbreak an iPhone, and that will allow side at loading of apps, uh, and but that can also allow more malware. That can also allow, allow more phishing. Uh, things like the TikTok app, where we're talking about how China can start collecting some of our data, that could start happening. Uh, and really, it can not only affect the phone that is being sideloaded, but also all the phones in the network. So if you are friends with somebody that sideloads side app, it's just like with Facebook. You know, you get the, some all of a sudden somebody creates a profile of you and then starts uh, getting friend requests so they can send messages, which is basically a phishing message. So they can then turn around and duplicate their profile and then try and make money on there. Now. With all that said, Apple does have a test area uh, that you can sign up for and you can be a part of with any of your apps to make sure that it's going to work within Apple's infrastructure. I think that's a, a perfect way for them to pose that we don't need to sideload apps at all on iOS devices. Because in all reality, the account, the question is who gets accountable when your phone gets hacked? And most likely it's not the app that just loaded. It's Apple. They have to take the brunt of any of the problems that happen there, and they have to make the explanations. And they can't just say, "Well, it's this app. It's it's their fault. It's not our fault." Because that's just not a good a good uh, face thing to do. Now, if the EU really wants to see this happen, there should be a group, a panel, independently from Apple, from Google that checks apps before they even get approved to go to an app on an iPhone to an Android phone. So uh, you don't come with this malware. You don't come with this uh, the, these other problems. And I think that's the biggest thing uh, and the whole over overview of the of the whole thing. So for me, I like the fact that Apple does not have the side uh, side loading for the common person. But Google is more on with Android. You can kind of do some more testing. So there is some uh, advantage to that. Uh, but for the most part, I, I like the fact that Apple has put a big foot down on this thing and saved us probably millions, if not trillions of dollars and headaches out there because we got enough headaches with people trying to access our Facebooks, access our Twitters to try and get into our bank accounts and try and take all our money. Thanks for that. Courtney? Well, I think uh, I have a slightly uh, – it's a good explanation, Jeffrey. I think you explained the, the goals and everything and, and how the, the EU is doing it uh, to allow it. It's an anti-monopolistic uh, move. It's because Apple, of course, has a monopoly uh, stronghold on everything that runs on the iPhone. And they, as, as, as a means of that, take 30% of every dime spent on – third-party generated software on that device, and 30% of every in-app purchase that happens uh, from any software sold on that device. 
And that tends to be monopolistic and to allow side loading, so to allow other manufacturers. There's a lot of small manufacturers out there that can't afford that 30% VIG, that don't have that high a markup uh, um, of percentage as others do. They operate on a smaller profit margin. And taking 30% out of their profit margin would make them not able to exist. So that's why uh, side loading is good. Uh, there are security issues, I'll grant you that. But uh, not having to pay that 30% VIG to Apple allows a lot more development and a lot more unique tools to be developed uh, that maybe wouldn't exist otherwise because they can't afford uh, that uh, 30% VIG that they have to pay to Apple. And sideloading has been available for years on PC platforms, Mac platforms, Android platforms. You know, there hasn't been a... Uh, a gatekeeper that charges you 30% to get onto any of those platforms before now. So that monopolistic move is what the EU is campaigning against. So you just have to be cautious, just like you are on all the other platforms that do allow sideloading, and run a antivirus checker, and there's plenty of tools out there that will check your uh, you know, firewalls that will prevent your, your software from communicating with Chinese servers when you're not looking. And uh, also that security, you know, worrying about sending your information, privacy, etc. Even tools that are available through the Apple's uh, store, you know, give up that information to the, the writers of the uh, of the software anyway. So you're you're agreeing to give up any information that you enter into or transmit to that company when you sign that end user agreement. Uh, when you click on I agree. When you install that software, so that's not going to prevent any of that. So, uh, the fear of uh, of theft of information or, or you know anything that you enter into your computer can't be you know stored by the person whose program you're entering it into. Thank you, Courtney, uh, Nigel. Okay, so here's a third view of this. Uh, this is all about uh, money. It's only about money, and uh, sometimes it's a bit about risk. But it, risk is about money. And the only reason the European community are pushing this in because they have been lobbied by people who want to break what they see as Apple's monopoly so they can make more money. The reason that uh, Apple want to do it is because they want to protect their users and make more money. So one should not, not assume that anybody in this thing has anything other than financial goals. I do think, though, when you are building an ecosystem for a platform, you have a philosophical question that you have to deal with. And think of it as a, a as a scale. On one end of that scale is come one, come all in a completely open way. On the other end of that scale is a closed wall controlled garden. And there are economic, there are risk, there are business practices, there are lots of reasons for doing either of those. Uh, I have no doubt that if Apple allows sideloading, it will increase the number of viruses, it will increase the amount of damage done to consumers, uh, but it will also make the platform open for more people to access it. Although I do struggle a bit with Courtney's uh, analysis for, for two reasons. One, and I'm, I may be channeling my inner Alex when I say this, if you've ever loaded an app up, there's a cost to doing it. And so whether you pay it for Apple, pay it yourself, whether it's 30% is another another debate. I think that's true. Uh, but many of us do come to 
the Apple ecosystem because we want a closed wall garden. We want some of those abilities. And to say that Apple is being competitive, uh, monopolistic, this is a, a definition of monopoly that is not the 75 or the 51%. It's a definition somewhat less that is really being designed by politicians to show they're doing something because they're receiving money. There's a trend in there somewhere. Thank you. Very illuminating. John? Yeah, there's no, with you. there's no legal sense in which Apple's a monopoly, and I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting into that. Happy to, and some other question comes up. But um, there's never been more opportunity for individual developers to make a living writing software than was opened up by Apple and iOS. There are open options like to go to the Google Play Store or to develop on the web or to work for a larger corporation. So developers could even build a new phone system if they wanted to. So it's not a monopoly in those senses. However, I think a, a bigger question with regulation is one of the laws of economics is anytime a government regulates, they necessarily incur some amount of dead weight loss, which is the loss to the economic system that happens with usually it's typically with tariffs. Um, when a government requires additional effort, then some amount of money is lost, it becomes less efficient, the system becomes less efficient. And the question should be, is the dead weight loss of requiring Apple to open up worth the expense of doing so. Thank you. I think this is a good opportunity to remind our viewers and producers to get questions in or suggestions to our brainstorming and education. Uh, we're about 10, 12 minutes away from the education hour. Uh, bring in ideas of what brainstorming uh, would be done, a discussion could happen, and give us ideas for the next uh, six months or so of education hour. And also here, uh, vote the questions. Uh, we're approaching the end, so we'll be looking for the highest voted questions to finish up our hour and put them in real quick here, and we'll get to them as much as we can. And that starts with the next question. Our next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Can you now make an AI clone of yourself? The Wall Street Journal reporter did just this and links a YouTube video. The Wall Street Journal's clone made phone calls, created a TikTok, tried to fool bank biometrics, and made video calls. This sounds to me like Google's assistant, uh, the very realistic sounding conversational assistant that Google demoed a few years ago. Uh, we're not sure where it is today. Uh, I don't use it, so I don't know if it's still very effective. It was a prototype, I think, when we first heard of it. But it was a very convincing assistant. It would make a phone call, make an appointment, get your hair done. And they demoed it, and everyone got very excited about it because it was so realistic. So, yeah, likely in the future, uh, you'll be seeing me as a clone on uh, office hours um, answering questions. Courtney? Yeah, that Google Assistant was called Duplex, which is kind of a crazy, crazy name. But I guess you create a duplicate of yourself to do little tasks. And there are, uh, with all the new AI tools out there, there's a lot of people that are generating uh, uh, tools to interface AI into you know, your email account and to your scheduler and to your appointment book and your calendar to uh, manage, your, manage those things. So it won't be far away until all those things are capable of doing that. Bank biometrics, 
uh, I don't think I didn't be. I wasn't able to see this video, which is very long, all the way through. She tried to fool her uh, friends with this uh, clone of herself uh, doing a, a phone call, etc. And you know they could they figured out that the the timing wasn't right. It looked like her and sounded like her, but the timing wasn't right. And there were pauses in the wrong place, or wasn't pausing where a normal person would pause and think about a question before it answered. The uh, the AI answered too a little too quickly without giving it any thought. So that was a bit of a giveaway. Uh, biometrics that banks use, uh, you know, it's hard to duplicate your fingerprint on a real-time mm-hmm. fingerprint reader. And facial recognition may be a problem, but I think most banks now have the ability to make sure that the image is coming from a live camera. And uh, there's ways to detect that in a phone, so uh, it can't be fooled by a artificially generated image that is not coming from the camera. So uh, there are ways to prevent um, AI synth bots from fooling, you know, high-end security type uh, situations. Thank you. And Jeffrey? I'm going to miss those days where they tried to uh, fake out a video where you take one name and put in a number. So thank you very much, John. And then they change it to Dave or something like that. Uh, but uh, a, uh, TikTok is already experimenting with AI-generated TikToks. And that is, uh, that's a really big... It can be a big concern if they are looking to take over the influencer models uh, in the world uh, for people to do different things. Because you could actually have somebody do a Tide Pod challenge type thing, uh, and then nobody's nobody can be accounted for because it's all AI generated. It's they don't know where they, where it came from, but then it, it explodes and becomes a big thing, and that becomes a big problem in wherever wherever the challenge happens. So that's that's an extreme for that. But uh, uh, it, the, the thing about AI is it, it's, it's getting easier and easier to do, and it's getting uh, very frustrating. And of course, if you're doing it uh, to try and get into somebody's bank account, then we need to figure out some new protocols, some new securities. Like for instance, uh, have a security that says, I'm never going to be able to call to do something major without having to have some sort of two-factor authentication, like a code from a phone number or anything like that, uh, before that happens. That way, that's going to help block some of this uh, this AI. Because in the heat of things, uh, if you were a bank teller taking phone calls, for example, uh, you're sitting there and you're going from call to call to call. And being able to recognize that the small nuances that could happen from an AI-generated uh, uh, person could be a little bit tougher to do because I because I, I know I've been on I've I've done phone support and it gets really tough. You go from one call to the next call to the next call. You just you just try and focus on answering their questions and giving them the best customer support possible. And so with that, things are going to leak through unless they have some sort of app that's also looking at what what's coming in and saying, okay, this is not right. Let's, let's take care of this. So uh, ultimately, I think we need to better our security because once again, mm-hmm. this is another freight train happening. It's just it, AI is going to be there and there's nothing you can do but only find ways to counter somebody trying to steal your money, steal your identity. Mm-hmm. Next question. Our next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. 
Is there an iPhone app that will automatically sort your apps into whatever categories you want other than the swipe right one? I'll take this one. Um, I'm an iPhone user, so I don't know what Android has, but I will concede that anything on the iPhone was probably tried on Android before. Uh, there is the library, which Apple introduced a few years ago, where all your apps are sorted into categories. So you can use the library as your primary interface and choose from there. Um, the other thing that I use when I'm sorting my apps is uh, how often I use them. So I can go to the apps list and it will tell me how much time I've spent on an app or how often I've used it or the last time I used it. And I can resort my main uh, window of icons to suit what I go to the most in whatever situation I'm in. When I was traveling, it was a different set. But when I got home again, I put it back to my previous set of things that I do more regularly. I think in Android, there was a library type app where you could get it to put criteria in and then it would find out what each of the apps do and suggest that they belong in there. But I'm not an Android user, so don't take my advice there. Next question. Our next question comes to us from George Butters in Halifax, Canada. Most of our online subscriptions for digital tools are adding AI features and adding an AI fee. Seems the wrong direction. Courtney, help us out. It seems, yeah, it seems like the wrong direction. I haven't really seen that of them adding an AI, specific AI feed. Uh, I see a lot of them advertising now with AI as a as an, a marketing inducement to you know try their product now because it's all new and improved. It's like the new and improved. You know, you're going to see it in soap dish soaps every uh, you know two or three years. How you know dish soap has been around for a long time. How can they make it better? You don't know. <laughs> but, uh, AI has become the new and improved of software yeah. out there. So I think a lot of it is marketing. Whether it is expensive, though, I'll give you that. So if they're actually using AI and not just using it as a marketing tool, it could be they're having to pay a lot more for services to host that neural network and to do the training for that specific tool. Uh, but those will be amortized very quickly over the use of that tool. And so I think the charge, an additional charge for AI will disappear quickly. Our next question. Our next question comes to us from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Another AI app, has anyone tested out SuperUs? And gives a link. It just came across my feeds, combining mind mapping and AI. Have you tried that out, John? No, I just learned about it this morning and I looked at the website, so it looks pretty cool. Um, I think what we're seeing is a Cambrian explosion of AI companies. And I feel like a lot of them are just trying to get acquired by larger companies. <laughs> and so uh, it's hard to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff in this particular case. And uh, for most of these, I myself, I'm just going to hold off to see uh, what I'm already paying for. Well, that's already going to include these sorts of things. Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see how the chaff goes. Yes. All right. Next question. Our next question comes to us from George Butters in Halifax. I did a radio series years ago called The Technology of Cheating. Cheaters will cheat, but ultimately they are only cheating themselves from the benefits of doing the work. Agree? Nigel might. Go ahead, I, Nigel. I think so, but they don't care because something in their brain tells them that shortcuts are a good way of doing it. And 
some people think that getting one over on somebody is a good thing to do. And there's all those sorts of people in the world. I think uh, it's just a fact of life, you know. And I think during the recent interesting times we've lived in, there's been this belief that you can get everybody to do something. And anyone who's run a large organization knows if you're lucky, you'll get 80% of the people to do something. And the other 20%, maybe it's only the other 5%, are never going to do it because something inside their brain says, when everybody else goes left, I'm going to go right for no readily apparent reason to them. And so, well, well cheaters are going to cheat. Well, they are going to cheat themselves out of the learning and the experience. They're never going to be any different because that's how the world occurs to them. Jeffrey? So... It, it, this is the reason why I don't like the term uh, fake it until you make it, because that it, for some people, they don't see it as cheating. They see it as a way to get into the market and, and get their foot in the door so they can build something. You know, uh, Theranos, Elizabeth uh, Holmes, perfect example. She believed, I, I believe she believed that she would eventually get a working model to the public. And when she didn't, it kind of fell apart uh, in her hands. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if there are companies out there that cheated at the beginning to turn around and make a product successful. And in fact, I, I talked about Uber earlier, and, and I know multiple ways that they cheated to get the market share that they're looking for and look at where Uber is right now. Uh, so it is it is a fake it till you make it type situation or cheat until you get caught type situation, ask for forgiveness, and then uh, get the slap on the wrist and then move from there. Because the, tons of examples of how that works in this alternate uh, business model that people do. So it, it's really point of view at this point, how you look at what you're doing with your company, with your product. And do you feel like you're cheating the customer? And Courtney, quickly now. Well, I see cheaters as uh, using cheating to break down barriers, and they may be artificial barriers that are put up to uh, prevent people from uh, breaking into, let's say, a high-paying uh, strata like like uh, Steven Spielberg uh, fought, you know, got onto Universal's lot and found a vacant office and set himself up there. He was cheating, but he got noticed eventually, and his talent was discovered. And he built that into a huge career. A cheater who's cheating uh, really is harming himself, as, as Jeffrey said. If if they don't have uh, the knowledge to actually continue that career, and they're cheating just to get uh, you know past a barrier that later they will have to prove that they have the goods to deliver once they get past the barrier. So, I think cheating for that respect uh, is you know has been acceptable for many years to break through artificial barriers, but not it's not going to get you by and, and survive or make you a hit in whatever field you're going to be in unless you have the knowledge already. And Chris? I yield my time to Nigel. <laughs> okay. Nigel, uh, last I was word. just going to add a codicil to the Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos thing. If you followed that story, it's not that she faked it until she made it. Maybe she did. I, I don't know. What happens is when she got found out for not being able to make it, she systematically, according to the stories one reads, uh, you know, in the books and the movies, uh, tried to destroy people's lives who proved that she had cheated. And I think that's when you have to draw a line and say, that's not faking until you're making, that is fraud. 
Now let's go to our last question of the first hour. Okay. Our last question comes to us from someone named Aaron Graham in Boston, Massachusetts. John, you shared the ROI model about developing corporate curriculum. Do relationships with your clients change how you would develop curriculum for them specifically? Yes, and that actually might be a good idea for a second hour in the future is how your relationship changes your communication plan with people. But absolutely, if they already have a, it depends on how strong an idea of what they know what they want is versus how well do I know them, how much do they trust me, as well as um, how much of a subject matter expert they are. But that's um, a lot goes into that conversation. All right. Well, all this week, Office Hours has been probing the community for suggestions and program ideas in all our focus areas. Today, we'll be finishing this exploration by brainstorming for ideas related to the future of education, which we can all explore in the coming months. Uh, we welcome any suggestions from our viewers and producers on what we might explore regarding the future of education. And uh, I think we can go right into the first suggestions. Aaron? All right, so our first question is our brainstorming panel discussion. And it looks like we have a few people that wanted to start us out, but let's do an actual question first, just in case we're not quite ready for that. Escape rooms as STEM teaching tools for students with accessibility issues, long-term absences, moving rooms um, to distant learning opportunities from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. This looks to me like a list of things we might look at. John, you want to probe this? Yeah, I was going to ask um, if, if we're looking at, it looks like escape rooms as STEM teaching tool, especially for students with accessibility issues, is one topic. And uh, the other, I don't know if the long-term absences, moving rooms from infotainment to distance teaching is a second topic as far as like changing classrooms to be more distance educated classrooms, which I think is, um, so I'm going to approach it like there's, those are two different topics related. Um, the escape rooms, I think, could be a really interesting conversation to, that would lead into what, what, what is an escape room and, and is it, how do you do that in a classroom versus out of a classroom, virtual or in person? So I think it leads to that kind of conversation, in particular, interactivity in education. And then long-term absences, moving rooms from infotainment. Um, I think there's an interesting technical discussion as far as what do you do to convert a classroom into a distance education classroom there as well. Yeah, Harshid? Yeah, so uh, the screen reader that I use is called uh, JAWS, and the company that's behind it, Freedom Scientific, uh, during the pandemic, they approached a uh, a process of having escape rooms and such. And so to get somebody that might be an expert in that level of they're dealing with a bunch of uh, vision-impaired people here in, in, in their um, company organization, then to uh, maybe use some of their information of how did they go through their processes and uh, uh, maybe use some of that as intel or have anyone from them as be guests to uh, uh, suffice this topic. Thanks. Aaron? So I love this list. I think any of these would be a great idea for any of our shows because I've used breakout rooms in, or I should say escape rooms in my classroom. I've done paper ones where there are clues on each page and they have to find the next one. 
And those are pretty fun for them. There are also cool websites like Breakout EDU that we could discuss and show how it's connected to the curriculum. I think what would be really great is if we could figure out um, how to show teachers how to make escape rooms, whether on Google platforms, Microsoft platforms, et cetera. Um, Yeah, I think a lot needs to be put into um, teaching tools for students um, with accessibility issues, along with just special ed in general, just helping them figure out different ways to solve problems, because that's how we differentiate for our kids. Um, And the infotainment to distant learning. Yeah, I think that would be another really great one, especially with the concept of making videos or making animations or things like that with our different programs that so many of you know so much about. I think those are all great topics we can add. Yeah, I think for me, I'd like to highlight the long-term absences. Uh, This is an issue in education generally, and it's an important thing in commercial training and corporate training that a person has to leave for a long period of time for personal reasons, medical reasons, and then they have to come back to the workforce. And handling that retraining or updating their training is an important thing, as well as for students who miss a large portion of class, bringing them back up to speed is is probably a good discussion for us to have. Uh, Let's try the next uh, suggestion. Our next suggestion comes to us from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Office Hours is a proponent of digital events and sees a coming reduction of in-person events. How do we transition to digital education softly so classrooms don't go the way of video stores, uh, horses as commercial transport, other obsolete technology? Chris, let's start with you. Well, um, great suggestions, Jack. Um, I think we should borrow from... uh, Alex Lindsay's principle that uh, the way to to start something like this is to go with the early adopters first. Don't worry about converting the whole population, just convert the king and queen. And um, in this regard, I think it would be important to um, identify some uh, opportunities where uh, remote instruction or learning, I mean, shift it from instruction to learning. How can we uh, support learners at a distance in their learning? So instead of uh, using an information uh, delivery model, uh, we use a a sort of mentoring and advising model for the uh, instructor and uh, focus much more on what what the learner can be supported to do at a distance whether that and and then find opportunities that exist today in uh, traditional schools where for example a student is uh, confined to home because of an illness and um, so how can we uh, provide opportunities for learning and support for those acting on those opportunities for learning encouragement uh connection with resources and so forth uh by the uh these early adopter teachers who would um, provide this kind of mentoring at a distance and in the process i believe as as alex does that um, once we get to see the power of 
these possibilities as they're further developed and use uh, appropriately supportive technology, then uh, sort of the second wave of uh, less than early adopter people will start to take notice and hear the stories and want to become involved and so forth. And eventually that'll become part of the uh, existing infrastructure rather than, um, as you suggest, uh, the abruptness of a, a shift like we experienced with the beginning of COVID and the closing of schools where overnight practically people were told to forget everything you used to do and uh, start doing something that you've never done before. And uh, that didn't go so well. That was not a, uh, a soft shift at all. John? Yeah, I think we have not um, this year talked much about the future of education, and I think that would be a, a good topic to have a conversation on pretty regularly. And Aaron? Yeah, I think this would really be a great topic, along with the previous question about um, reducing uh, uh, absences. I think it's a very large topic, and I think that there's a lot to be there's a lot that's put into those concepts of allowing every student to have equity and the availability to get in touch with the digital, um, with everything digital, because I know even after the pandemic, there are still schools in Massachusetts that don't have one-to-one -one technology. They're close, but they don't have that. So I think it's not just a, a focus point for office hours, but it's also kind of a global concept too. I think I'd like to follow up with what Chris said and, and that it's actually a mentoring model we're probably moving toward, not necessarily a solo learning thing, but it's a access to people who know, access to information we're looking for, and then finding when you've seen something and you don't quite understand it, find someone who can mentor you through it and get the information you need. I'm also a proponent of doing learning by doing in the sense that if I wanted to learn how to do databases, I acquired some database software and applied a project to it and then learned along the way how to structure my data to fit the project. And when later I had to do other projects, I'd already done most of the research, but I did still need a mentor to guide me into the best practices and the more effective means of organizing data and later my database skills improved. This all came just on my own volition. I didn't enroll in anything, I wasn't certified, and I got to know quite a bit about it, which served me later and it helped my business too. So in the sense that we could have a parallel education process, which works in conjunction with the current investment and in plant for delivering education, uh, we could also have a process of mentoring, which would help people along if they're struggling with learning. Next question. Our next suggestion go, comes from Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. COVID pushed many educators to learn how to teach using remote learning, including upping their game regarding video production. What are some great ways educators and students can continue to have benefits arising from being production tech savvy? That's a great suggestion. Chris? I forget why I clicked on this one, uh, but uh, <laughs> being perfectly honest, um, 
but I think that uh, as uh, as we were reminded by Dave, uh, this this model of uh, becoming a mentor, which um, already exists to some extent in the K twelve system, uh, but much more toward the um, toward programs and opportunities that are project based. I want to circle back to our uh, general commitment among, or general consensus among the office hours, uh, education hour panelists over the years of that uh, project-based learning or problem-based learning, as it's also called, uh, seem to provide much more engagement and uh, the possibility of transfer to new situations than uh, traditional information transfer models of teaching and learning and testing. So um, upping our game with regard to mentoring me in this context or in response to this suggestion means um, that, that our students are working either individually or in small groups on a project. And uh, the project, of course, the range of projects would be relevant to the subject matter area that's being um, learned about or um, focused on. But the particular project is, is unique and the, the learning of how to work together as a team with different strengths and different weaknesses and, and how to actually provide the students with uh, a feeling of independence and responsibility uh, means that uh, often the work on the project needs to happen outside normal school hours or normal uh, class meeting hours. So we could even think about this beginning to change the way uh, students are grouped and interact with each other during the uh, required hours of attendance at school and the opportunities that are provided by after-school clubs and laboratories and maker spaces and so forth and so on. So there are lots of yeah. implications for how this uh, sh seemingly simple shift to project-based learning could um, have a ripple effect on the, what schools look and feel like, including not having to be on the property of the school between the hours of 7.50 a.m. and 3.23 p.m., um, mm -hmm. which will scare a lot of people. So what we need really are some models and examples of schools uh, following these principles that act are actually working. And then those models could possibly be modified and adapted by uh, the second level of beyond uh, the earliest adopters. And Erin? I think we've, as in office hours the past couple of years, we've done a really great job of really promoting, um, especially on the education hour, good video and good audio, and how that is the key to any sort of good quality videos. So I think the best way we can go about this is to maybe have a discussion about how to include the um, the people that work in tech in our district and see how we can incorporate them into the classroom. 
also making sure that we can get our hands on some of that extra technology because we know that a lot of times things like AirPods or, you know, little microphones from our phones aren't the best quality, but, you know, getting students slightly better ones, they don't have to be super expensive, but getting some of those um, pieces of technology, I think would be a really great way for us to show teachers and students how to enhance their video making. So I think ways to either generate funds for that or ways that we can get in touch with other companies would be a great idea to add to that topic as well. I think back to when schools mandated which calculator you were allowed to use to in high school to do your calculation in math. So we may find that schools will have preferential lists of requirements for home learning, and then we would support that with the technology or technologists who know how to make that work really well. Next suggestion. Our next suggestion comes from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, topic idea, how to create immersive learning experiences on a budget, immersive audio simulation. Give it a try there, John. Yeah, I think uh, especially as um, thing, if Apple releases a headset, I think a common conversation is going to be talking about things like the role of VR in education or um, creating technology experiences in education. So I feel like one topic is um, what is immersive experiences and, and how, do you, how do you create them? And then the second topic is tools and techniques as far as immersive education goes. Yeah, I would agree. Aaron? I would 100% agree, John. I think having teaching educators how to make their learning more, not just immersive, but more student-centered so that they feel like they have more of a connection to it is a great way for educators to make their content more engaging. Um, so I think that along with adding in some of the um, the budget <laughs> concepts, because I know that teachers, especially at this time of the year, we're kind of running out of supplies. So knowing some budget-friendly ways to get our students more involved will help not only us get through the last two months of school, but also make it immersive and fun and educational for them. Um, Harshid suggests that we don't have to wait for Apple. Uh, we could just get a Sony MV1 and get underway. Uh, which, of course, brings up the question of who's going to make all this content that is immersive and properly suited for learning instead of just entertainment. So that would be an excellent discussion is if we're going to have immersive, is there a learning opportunity there? And I think I believe there certainly is. Thanks for the suggestion. Let's see what the next one is. Our next suggestion comes from Tommy Chance in Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota. What would be a way to promote and get more great panelists for Saturdays? Chris, got any ideas? Well, I think we have great panelists uh, already, and that's great. Um, but like with any uh, situation, we have to plan for uh, turnover because our great panelists, we had great panelists uh, last July. And some reached a situation where they they could not uh, continue to participate. But I don't think we had what you might call a succession plan or a, a deep bench of people who are ready to be or eager to be panelists, but uh, 
had not yet made the move from uh, viewer perhaps to um, to panelist. And there is a a bit of a a lift in making that shift from. Um, I remember my first or second uh, appearance. There were a lot of felt like there were a lot of balls in the air and a lot of things that I had to pay attention to that were new to me. And, and so, and I was nervous and wondered aloud whether anything I had to say uh, had actually uh, made a, made a positive contribution. And I got a lot of um, sort of offline encouragement uh, after my appearances, uh, suggesting that um, my, uh, input was wiser than I thought it was or that I felt it was or than I feared it was. So, so I think in a way we, we who are panelists and, and regulars uh, need to uh, be enthusiastic promoters and supporters of our peers who are coming on early in, in uh, as panelists and uh, you know, be aware of, or be, re-experience re the beginner mind that we had when we were first uh, active as panelists. Um, of course, we, we can also take on the responsibility of encouraging peers and friends of ours to look into this and see whether they would be interested in, uh, in becoming uh, contributors as panelists. But finally, uh, I think the the character of the questions and the and the producers has changed over over the two and a half years or so that I've been involved with uh, Education Hour. Uh, certainly during the pandemic, uh, a, a lot, hundreds, thousands, perhaps millions of teachers had burning questions about how to do this new thing that they were uh, pivoted into, which was uh, remote schooling. And so they had authentic and urgent questions um, that were partially technical, but partially educator related. So it was a, a perfect uh, mix of um, answerable questions by those of us who have technical expertise and by those who have uh, long experience in, in education at every level. Um, but that, that isn't our uh, producer clientele anymore, as far as I can tell, because the the pressure isn't on out in the world for everybody to get better or at least get up to some minimum baseline in remote um, teaching and learning. So uh, the world has pivoted, but I don't think uh, Education Hour has quite figured out how to pivot to meet needs that um, that may be out there, but um, we're still sort of uh, stuck between framing of what it is that Education Hour has to offer. I'll stop there. Thanks. Those are all great points. Erin? I agree a lot with what Chris just said. Um, some other things that um, I think we can promote the education hour is especially more of a, I want to say hands-on approach. Um, I, I keep going back to when John did the PowerPoint slides. I thought that was so great that like I could watch what he was doing and 
do it in real time off to the side as he was showing and demonstrating. That's what teachers really need. Um, because we have conversations in the teachers' rooms about, you know, philosophical discussions and we have great conversations about our students and how we can make it better. And a lot of teachers will come to me and ask for tech help and things like that. But um, I think the make it on Saturday and then use it on Monday concepts, I think should really be focused on in this hour, especially in the second hour, because that's what teachers really need. We go to TikTok and Instagram for really quick, like, this is how you make this. And you put it up there and the Google form does the escape room and so on and so forth. I think that's a big way we can promote office hours is that we're not just talking with you, but we're helping you create something to use for your classroom. In order to get more panelists, I think, see, I kind of I kind of go back and forth with this concept because I love coming on on Saturdays because I get to talk with people who know way more about technology than I do. But I think sometimes Saturdays are a rest day for most teachers and most people in general. So I think sometimes the Saturday um, commitment might be, you know, a little difficult at times. And because we want such a high quality and high caliber of the audio and video, which it should be 100% so that you can see and hear us clearly, sometimes that can be a little nerve wracking for teachers because if they don't have the equipment that we have, then it's a lot more difficult when you just have your AirPods and your MacBook, you know, you're great in the classroom, but the moment you try to come on here, it's a little bit more difficult. So I think we have to try to get more panelists that have maybe different views about um, or different ideas or work with different programs or things that we can use, like I said before, to build something on Saturday and use it in the next week in the classroom. I'll just add shortly that we are a global community and a lot of times Saturday is closing in late Europe and it's Sunday morning in Japan. So it's going to be a little difficult for people to find time throughout the entire weekend, and I'm the same way, uh, to be able to be here for us. So the panelist thing is is always a concern, and I, I, we would invite you, Tommy, to be here too. Arshid? Yeah, it's a fantastic question there, uh, Tommy, with this. Uh, I want to give you a quick synopsis of what I've done recently. Uh, Ch Chad and AV Trainer had sent me a link about Access Conference, and I joined it. But what I learned is how some of these people aren't engaged with maybe the other side, right? And there's always this middle part that gets left out. And so how do we connect everybody together is what we're always trying to uh, look at. And for educators, uh, we may know to do things, but we might not know how to do them the best way. So uh, when I what I took back from the Access um, conference, I brought in a few PowerPoints and I had John messaging me. He's like, hey, this is good stuff. This is statistical. So it makes other people drive in other fashions that the statistics parts make importance. And um, the other thing that I took away, uh, there's another person called uh, Amy Amenti from uh, Vocal Eye, and uh, she is she does a session on uh, audio description, but she's bringing in all these different guests and talking about AI and talking about how are we getting how are we moving forward. So if these are the people that need a voice, I really feel that our procedure works great 
just to get them in the door first, because then they could share what they want to, and then they would be able to speak better. I mentioned to a person that the microphone sounded like it was a Mac microphone, not a regular microphone. They made an adjustment. And that's just because we're spoiled here and we like audio better and all of that. And I love that RE20, by the way, uh, Aaron. But uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we just want to make sure that we're giving people what they want. So to, to grow the panel, I think, takes just that communication factor of going out in your in your community and saying, hey, look, this could be better for your college. Hey, look, this could be better for your job. Hey, look, uh, you know what? I know this company called View Technologies. They're in Orlando. Hmm. Everybody loves that company right now on the, on the panel anyway. So it's just going there, trying to do things realistically and pushing our uncomfort zones, right? So if I'm uncomfortable using a mic and a camera because I don't know what I'm pointing at, why don't I have somebody on comms? that could solve the whole issue. And we should teach others that there are these technologies or there are these thought processes available to you. So um, to bring in everything to tie it in together is we need to talk to people out in our community and just be on the panel, even if it is as a guest. And maybe you might uh, lose all the, you know, you don't have to go through the Makana hoops just to come as a guest because you're an expert in your subject matter. And I think that in itself can uh, alleviate the stress of just coming onto the panel. And then maybe they could think, hey, you guys do it incredibly. Why not have it this way? Um, just to end with this statement here, uh, I do have one other person that I want to bring in, and she's an educator. And she deals, the reason why I enjoyed her is the audio quality. Uh, she does remote, it's called Allied Instructional Remote. I forget the last part of the name of the company, but they have a book out. And so to bring in people like that, that have written a book, that talk about Google Chromebooks, that talk about Mac, Apple iPads, and talk about other tools that are being used in the industry. And then, you know, to have like uh, someone like Chris Widener talk about Peplink and how it's going to help educators. So, I mean, I'm, I'm calling out all, all to everybody out there. So come on on the panel. It's not that hard. Trust me. John Snyder. Yeah, I think my, my dream would be if we had 25 regular people and they came every other or every third time, we'd regularly have a panel of 8 to 12 people because as the panel gets smaller, it's more work for everyone else to keep it going. But if you have a large panel, it's less, you got a flywheel effect that helps generate questions and conversations. So um, those of you who might be watching as producers or watching after the fact, uh, it is great to have great audio and video and we strive for that here but you don't have to spend two thousand dollars on a camera and five hundred dollars on a microphone um, and we will help you get better and it will help you refine your thinking refine your speaking refine your presenting there's a lot of value that can be had um, so if you're interested feel free to reach out to one of us through discord um, because we'd love to have you and the more brains we have the more collective iq we have and we get better job at answering questions so let's answer another one our next topic comes from, uh, sorry, uh, George Butters, Halifax, Canada. University degrees are validated by accreditation authorities. When will the student be able to build a degree from a different accredited unit, unis, or will they stop caring about the diploma? And John, take it away. I think uh, as far as future of education goes, competency-based education or uh, accreditation outside of formal authorities is going to be a growing topic of conversation uh, in the future of education. And I think it could be a fascinating second hour to talk about. Okay. Uh, next suggestion. Our next suggestion is from Douglas Carmichael, helping IT or media professionals from other fields transition into education. 
I find this one a really good suggestion because I've actually had people come to me uh, who are professionals in the tech world and wonder how you get into teaching and how you help other people. And they want to do it because they want to pass on their expertise and their knowledge and experience. And the opportunities may not be there unless you find somebody who will let you in the door. Uh, sometimes if you're going to institutions, uh, technical institutes or even universities, uh, having guest visitors or, or uh, guest resource people is an option for some, but not always. And most are required to have some sort of teaching degree or diploma in order to qualify to be in a classroom with students. So there is a, a barrier there, but it's not insurmountable. Uh, I've been an occasional instructor in two of the one of the colleges and a technical institute, and I did short-term work, but it was to help those students uh, find more about IT and and media production. John. Yeah, and I, I've been a substitute teacher at schools, and I think talking about how you can use leverage that as an opportunity or some different programs. A lot of different states have different programs for incorporating people without education degrees into formal teaching roles. So uh, that might be a tough conversation to have because it's so different state to state. But how to also transition into corporate education, I think, would be a valuable conversation as well. Yeah, really, really important there. And another suggestion. Uh, the next one's from me. I'm wondering what are some guests that you think would make for great second hours? Aaron, start us off. I think anybody that can, that is an expert in some concept, whether it's how to share, how to organize your Google Drive, or how to um, make a really great PowerPoint, or something that teachers can make on Saturday and bring into the classroom on Sunday, uh, or I'm sorry, on Monday. But I think, um, I guess, something similar that we could maybe think about is the concept of John Corpo, that who came on to talk about Edge of Protocols, because he reminded me of something when we had the conversation, and I was able to make it after we got off the show, and I was able to use it in my classroom the next week. So someone who has a and who is an expert in something like that, who is able to show you and then be able to demonstrate it, um, would be a great person to help for second hour. Chris. I, I agree with uh, the idea that uh, being able to see something on Saturday and try it out on Monday is, is wonderful. And it's possible that um, for our format, that guests who um, cannot answer questions and provide examples of a, of a larger chunk of, uh, of behavior and thinking would also be good. For example, um, as I said earlier, we're, we're somewhat committed to the idea that uh, project-based learning and program-based learning, uh, problem-based learning are part of the future and seem to uh, increase engagement and memorability and the possibility of transfer uh, to the learning that goes on when students are deeply engaged in creating something and revising it and demonstrating it to audiences whom they hope to uh, positively impress. So uh, 
I would look for guests who are uh, experienced experts in a, a topic like uh, project-based learning and from different levels of the um, education system, from graduate school to kindergarten. Uh, what does project-based learning look like in different uh, age groupings and uh, different settings, um, you know, inner city schools, project-based learning may look different and the opportunities may different be different than in suburban schools and so forth. And high schools look different than middle schools, perhaps. So that that's my general suggestion is that we look for uh, people who have experience with um, solving the, the practical problems and issues of adapting a big idea like project-based learning to particular uh, sectors of the education system. John? Yeah, three specific gifts I think guests I think would be great to have would be Clark Quinn, who wrote the book on uh, education fallacies or education myths, Patty Shank, who wrote the book on multiple choice questions, and Dr. Philippa Hardman, who is an AI researcher in education. All right. I endorse having people on who know how to demonstrate something. And I also think, Chris, you've reminded me that I should check back with the uh, project approach people and see if they'll give us another guest. So we'll look into that. Jack is our next question. Jack Ruppel in Breckenridge, Colorado, uh, suggests augmented reality used for reviewing, critiquing, and understanding classical literature, music, and STEM. Anchoring to a passage, a photo, and an equation. Augmented reality is a perfect thing for education. And I think, yes, we should have a close look at some of the applications of augmented reality for exploring things that you can't get access to. I know NASA has modeled all of their landers and, and rockets and that. And it would give people a chance to have a closer look at the vehicles themselves without having to travel all the way to Mars. So I think, yes, augmented reality, and there's so many things that could be portrayed in augmented reality as a support for education or for instructors is an excellent subject for us to explore. John? Uh, with that, I think using uh, USDZ files to, um, and I don't know, I know around seventh or eighth grade, most students have phones. I don't know how often students have things like iPads in the classroom, but being able to project or use a projection of a 3D image in real life um, and how to build those or where to find them to use for education, I think might be interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Excellent suggestion. Next one, next one up. George Butters in Halifax, Canada is back. Guardian social media writer Meg Picard coined the hump of irrelevance that blows up Twitter in the wake of something significant. Is a lot of the current crop of AI headed for the same fate? How these things shake out is uh, there's some historical precedent to how new technologies get adopted and slowly become integrated and you know indispensable. Not sure yet whether you can say Twitter's blowing up. It's certainly in crisis a bit, but uh, when it settles down or maybe people change their minds about whether they want Twitter. Uh, I don't know what something significant is in your in your reference there, so maybe you know John can help me try and figure that one out. And the current crop of AI headed for the same fate. Uh, 
maybe, maybe they'll become irrelevant. Yes. John? In general, I think uh, AI in education seems to be a, a conversation that comes up frequently. So uh, I would endorse that. Mm -hmm. And next up. From me again, student-made video, how to teach students to make them and how to use it in the classroom. I'm a big proponent of letting students discover that, yes. And, and they're already doing it. It's just a matter of giving them the guidance. I think all the phones people play with, all the skateboard videos I'm seeing from kids that are seven or eight years old, this, this sort of thing is, is becoming a natural way of communicating. And we may not need to do more than just show them the technical chops and the editing skills and the kind of storytelling methods that all media have. And it starts with learning to write, and then it goes to learning to speak, and then it goes to making a video. So I think, yes, video in the classroom and student-made, very high. We've talked about it a little bit before in, in previous uh, office education hours, but we should revisit that on a regular basis, sure. Next up. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas suggests perhaps having recurring focuses for the EDU days would be a way to help educators that are focused on those topics show up regularly, if they're not so interested in other discussion topics, like audio, video, business-focused weekdays. That's an interesting suggestion. Harshid, do you have a remark? Uh, yeah, uh, this would be a great way to segment out what is really relevant to people's interests. Um, as we look at education as a whole, we're we're doing ed education every single day because we're learning something by the questions answered. So when we look at the scope here, I think if we generalize it into certain topics, that could be a little bit more uh, feasible to every audience member. So like AI, I would hand that over to John Preto, um, just because he likes his AI. And, uh, you know, so there's certain, and certain topics that really just... Uh, conjure up more of a liking amongst people. So if we're talking about, let's say, audio, we should talk about it in the like the, the question previous, the video question. Um, how do you really go through YouTube and the YouTube screen while you're uploading? And how do you write a proper description, right? That's like the intricacies of it and the education part of it that I don't understand that's the part I have a, a blockage. So um, if we take that or even audio, well, what is a USB interface? What is a this, that, and the other? And just giving an example while we're doing it so that people get the differences of cost to, um, you know, different aspects of business. And even on the business side of education, how do we make great business decisions. Uh, the ROI, uh, as we talked about earlier, is part of that business curriculum or that type of topic. So breaking it down into those is going to be great. And then also having those uh, guests that come in to really demonstrate their product and to talk about it, not just, you know, be an advertisement. And I think having that in the educational focused uh, area could be really helpful. Thanks. Chris? It's well known that... Um the academic year uh, follows a predictable pattern, that there are different things that teachers and educators think about and worry about at the beginning of the school year, uh, during the winter break, as, as you're coming back to school in January in the Northern Hemisphere, and uh, the craziness of spring semester where there's two years worth of work to be done in in four weeks 
and throw in uh, state testing for the K-12 system. So uh, why don't we think about organizing our topics in a way that anticipates what we, the general issues that, that often arise at each uh, chunk of the academic year, whether it's in graduate school or in elementary school and everywhere in between. And, and so uh, provide ourselves with a kind of a template that says we're, we're going to address or solicit and entertain uh, questions and suggestions uh, that are particularly relevant to the stage of the academic year that we're about to enter so that it will be uh, whatever the information that our panelists and others provide is uh, kind of time relevant to what's what's next. It would be especially helpful for first-year teachers, novices, and so forth. Thanks, Chris. Next suggestion. Our next suggestion is from Aaron Graham on the panel from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, social emotional learning in a digital classroom using technology to help SEL content and examples of modeling or using AI in the classroom for grades K through five. Aaron, you want to start us off? Absolutely. I think that there's not enough of technology with social emotional learning in terms of whether in the digital classroom, the physical classroom, um, and to help support students in times of need um, to get to something very quick and easy. I know I've had to, you know, scour YouTube and other sites to add some videos to my Google Classroom. So when they're really stressed out, they can go to it and watch either like a funny cat video or like a calming, um, like breathing bubble exercise from our friend Erica. Um, I think that's really important to have more of those um, pieces of technology available to students and educators um, without adding it as something else for our plates, but something that can be put in without a whole lot of explanation. So anything that can be related to that would be great. But also the concept of using AI in the classroom, um, especially models of that, because I know I, I think about um, Alex's concept of like the heart, like thinking about an anatomy classroom and seeing like a 3D rendering of it or like an AI rendering of it so they can have a better idea about it. But for the K-5 classroom, it's a little bit more difficult. And I would love to learn some new ways to add that into my classroom with the much littler ones. Mm-hmm. Yes. John? Yeah, I think uh, a, a whole week could be done on using AI at different age groups and how you might teach, you know, one, just how to use it. Secondly, maybe as the child gets older, how to um, evaluate it. Uh, and then second, you know, finally, how do you use it to augment yourself in your writing ability? Maybe um, could be an interesting topic because like right now, my kids use ChatGPT mostly to just write stories about their favorite characters and mash them up. Talking Tom, if he was in the Marvel's universe and that sort of thing. Um, and so I'd be interested to learn more ways to help stimulate their creativity beyond just uh, writing the same stories over and over again. I, I don't know what SEL is, and maybe we, a subject for our discussion would be to expand on that. And it would. Aaron, I had a question on, on that. I, I meant to yeah. bring up. Um, do you, when you say SEL in a digital classroom, and secondly, use, using technology, do you see that as two different conversations, or are they two parts of the same conversation? 
I guess it could be two parts of the same conversation. Um, because when I was teaching remotely, um, it was a lot more difficult to use social emotional concepts because when I'm in the classroom and a student's having a hard time, I can go put my hands on their shoulders or, you know, crouch down next to them and, you know, talk to them quietly. Um, but that really wasn't always an option for the digital classroom besides whipping them into a breakout room and hoping that they went there in a dysregulated state. So, yeah. okay. so, yeah. so using mm-hmm. the concepts of social emotional learning content, not only in the classroom, but in a digital classroom too, but having more um, ways to, to show the concepts of social emotional learning with technology. Okay. Let's go to the next one. Next one's from me again. Uh, Aaron, you talked about wanting to make on Saturday or learn on Saturday so you can make on Monday. And my question is, what are some hard skills that would make for strong second education hours? Go ahead, Aaron. So a lot of the things are making making things like slides, making things like um, different activities, project-based learning things. I think those are difficult for teachers sometimes because we'll look at a concept and we'll say, there's no way I can make this project-based. How could we make that project-based and how can we use technology to do so? I think that's a huge thing. I think another thing is the concept of time management for teachers. We have so much on our plates um, I always say like the amount of hats we wear, where the teachers, where the counselors, where the nurses, where the uh, lunch staff, where we're everything, you know, mm-hmm. during those times that we're with our students. So allowing to using technology to help teachers manage not only their own time teaching besides just typical uses like timers, but for ways to um, allow teachers to get things done a little bit easier, thinking about the concept of chat GPT, writing my progress report comments, things like using technology in that way to help teachers free up more of their time so they're not so bogged down with the intricacies of like day-by-day things that are a little tedious. Does that help you out, John? It does. And um, I was thinking specifically, Dave last couple of weeks ago talked about PDFs and there was a lot of people who were very interested in PDFs, and I learned a ton. Um, so I think that's a good example of what we should do more of. Uh, one specific topic um, that I was thinking is I recently learned as part of our uh, NAB coverage how to a lot more tools that you can use in Google Drive and how to link uh, forms together, Google Forms with Google Sheets, with Google Docs, and how to automate a lot of processes using a tool called Autocrat. So I think... Um, that kind of thing is a really interesting conversation uh, that we could do throughout the year as well. Great. Next up. Next comes from Douglas Carmichael, connecting students to careers and people that practice them. I think this is an education subject and in some respects, it's a social subject too. I know that in the UK, when you apply for unemployment assistance, you're given many educational opportunities to change your skill set, to enhance your situation. Uh, They give you credit management advice. Uh, So so there are people that they make available to help you learn new things. And if you want to change careers or whatever, they've got whole programs that they offer. It's 
unique, I think, to the UK, because in my country, they don't do as much of that. They do a few references and referrals, but they don't actually have programs set up in advance to try and push people or pull people into other careers. So yeah, I think connecting students to careers and people is, is an interesting question for us to discuss, because it may be part of the future of education. Aaron? Yeah, I absolutely think that's a great idea for that. And to think about maybe ways that teachers could reach out to local community members that do those jobs, you know, like the police, the firefighters, things like that, and have them even make like some short videos um, about what they do on a daily basis that are kid-friendly or having kids write a whole bunch of questions that we send to these community members to have them have that dialogue or even just connect them over Zoom and be like, hey, do you want to learn what it's like to be a firefighter? Let's talk with a local one that lives right down the street from you. That'd be a good way to connect I, community to it. I, I'm reminded that a long time ago in my junior high years, there was a career day and we had a whole passel of people you could sign up to have, they were going to speak in a classroom. And if it was a subject you were interested in, you went to that classroom and you sat through their little presentation. And I credit it with me meeting a couple of people that later I got to work with. So maybe bring back career day. That, that could be a thing. Um, let's go to the next one. Our next suggestion is again from George Butters in Halifax, Canada, and MVP question asker today. Office Hours promotes the potential size of online audiences as being a far greater than in-person versions. Why do some universities keep playing brick? Or doesn't global scale apply to old schools? John, start us off. Again, I think this is a great uh, future of education and educational models and how will schools be able to uh, continue to serve a raising population with fewer uh, teachers and what's happening with our teachers as they exit the industry, I think is a great conversation. Some of my experience in our local universities in my district is that they have been laying non-brick environments and support and I, I guess the infrastructure for people to be able to come in from a distance. I live in a sparsely populated area. Uh, the major city is populated, but outside that city, it's pretty sparse. So distance education was a big subject with my university uh, back in the 80s. And they've made great inroads, and the government, my provincial government, has supported that by putting fiber into every single town in the whole province so that you can get access to that stuff. And now the universities are starting to offer it. So I think we're making progress there, but it would be worth checking to see what other districts and uh, areas are, are doing similar things. Next up. Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. What are your current roadblocks that detour your moving forward in education? How do I find the best detour? Roadblocks. Hmm. That, yeah, that's a challenging one. Um, We'll keep it on the list and see if we can find some people who help with that. Uh, I don't know, you know, it would, there are many ways uh, an education gets detoured. So maybe maybe there's some people we can find. But uh, we'll keep that suggestion and look at it again. Next up. Jack Ruppel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Using game engines for interactive visualization, quaternion matrices, statistics, economics. Oh, 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 interactive visualizations, very complicated stuff, very difficult stuff. You want to give it a try, John? Yeah, I don't know what most of those words mean, uh, <laughs> but I, think I can talk about economics. Um, I, I think data visualization as an educational topic is a, 
a great thing, uh, whatever quaternion matrices are. Well, this also fits into our regular visits to discussions about gamification, uh, whether interactive visualizations are actually sort of sorting games and, and uh, statistical games. So we'll keep that one on the, on the bench here and see if there's something we can find with interactive visualizations. Let's finish with George. George, it says, the Khan Academy was founded on a record it for me, uncle. It's easier than when you do it live. How does OH Education use that approach for sharing what you know and love to the world? I think we do some of that. Uh, we've been sort of learning and, and learning all of the ropes on this ship and what they do and how it steers us. So we're, we're still getting a handle on it, but the suggestions just as today with the suggestions we have gives us some insight into what our producers would like to see. Uh, Aaron and John. I think that goes along with a lot of what flipped classroom is. And I know while we've talked about it on the show before, I think there's always new ways to incorporate it. Um, so for students to be able to watch something ahead of time and then see it live in the classroom the next day, I think it's really helpful for them to see it in mo multiple modalities. So that would be a great topic. John? Yeah, and like Aaron said, we've talked about the concept of Flip Classroom. We haven't talked a lot about the how-to and specifically how to make a good video. I think we have a great community in office hours, especially throughout the week. If we can bring some of them in to discuss how to design video would be a great conversation. That's terrific. I really want to thank everybody who contributed ideas today. We'll be guided by these in the coming months. We continue to work with others in getting guests and researching tech and as it relates to the practice of teaching and learning. So we'll continue to do that. But we also want to acknowledge all the people who lend us their time every day to operate office hours and after hours for all of us. John and I are always grateful for the panelists who contribute to the day's discussion each week. There are always people in after hours all day and all night ready to get you a quick answer for, well, most of the time, uh, to nearly any technical question you might be struggling with. It's where the global in our community really is. Thanks for being here. We'll see you again next Saturday. I could use a second hour on uh, multitasking, taking notes while trying to read. I think I need a program on whispering. I was talking, they talked to me about that before, about how I forgot to whisper because I was so excited and the show had gone so well. But now I'm learning to whisper. You gotta keep these traditions up. Thanks everyone for being here. This has been as I expected, a nice list of things for us to consider.